Grassroots, True Grit. This is Shenango Voice. Visit our website at shenangovoice.com, and if you enjoy our programming, share a link to our podcast with your friends. This episode of Shenango Voice is sponsored by the Bohemian Moon Restaurant. Bohemian Moon is kicking off their new Doshi Rock meal program in the first quarter of 2021. Doshi Rock is a monthly subscription meal plan featuring convenient weekly prepared meals for pickup or delivery. Dine-in service is available Wednesday through Saturday from 4.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. Dine-in times are subject to change, so please visit their website at twobakeriesandarestaurant.com or call 334-9480 for the current dine-in schedule and for more information about the safe and convenient Doshi Rock meal program. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Shenango Voice, a local public service podcast. Our mission is to inform, connect, and inspire Shenango County, New York, with information and stories that bring out the best in our community. Welcome to part two of our series, Chokehold, featuring a look back on a 30-year career in law enforcement with retired New York State Trooper Liz Wonka. This interview was recorded on November 29th, 2020, with producers Betty By the Way, Diane Gallo, and Mibby Kim. After the murders of George Floyd and the resulting Black Lives Matter protests, and before the invasion of the Capitol in Washington, D.C. Currently, in response to Governor Cuomo's call for community input into local policing practices, law enforcement agencies throughout Shenango County are recruiting community advisory boards and surveying residents for recommendations. In our first segment, Liz describes what good police training and police leadership look like and the ways police are trained to contain and de-escalate dangerous situations. To me, what I'm hearing is a different, like they're looking at the arrest as something different than from what they looked at it before. Yeah, or, or, or feeling that if I, if I get aggressive or challenge this police officer, it is not good for me. And now I think you have more people who feel emboldened to challenge an officer's actions. I've had friends, people I know who maybe their worst law-breaking is, is a, a vehicle and traffic violation or something like that, and telling me in, in outrage about how the police officer looked at them carefully as though they were a criminal and how that was so wrong and they were offended and they yelled at the police officer and got all mad. And I thought, well, you know, what, what was it they did that was so offensive? Well, they looked hard at me or they, you know, mm. just bizarre, to me, a bizarre response, but they feel emboldened to do that, which puts everybody at greater risk. It ratchets up the tension. Ratchets up the tension. Yeah. And so, again, it's more important for police officers to be mindful of the training they've had in de-escalation and to use it. You know, and that was a big part of our training was how to not let someone else's hysteria or aggression make your level of aggression or concern go up. We had a lot of training with that. Could and you talk a little bit about that dialing back that you were trained to? Mm -hmm. In my training was a constant underlying theme that um, the police need to try and de-escalate situations, to control situations, and to keep it as safe as possible. 
And we talked about your first weapon is your voice. And I, in most of my career, was able to use that very successfully. And throughout my career, again, I would see some people who were better at it than others. Um, some people have an ability to relate to others that way. I had people, um, you know, try and challenge me to fight. So you'd have to, well, I, I could, you know, take you down or beat you up and you're just a, you know, a woman and you're this and that. And my response would be, maybe so, but first of all, I don't get paid to engage in fights or fisticuffs. I, I get paid to control a situation, so that's what I'll do. And yes, you're right, maybe, maybe you could beat me up. I'm not saying you could, but maybe you could. But the thing is, if I lose, somebody's going to come behind me, and somebody else and somebody else. State police won't stop, and so you might as well make it easy on yourself and go nicely now. Save yourself a lot of trouble. But that seems very reasonable <laughs> to me. You know, I go. And it was, it was often very effective, mm -hmm. that type of response, you know. What changed? Why do we seem to have this kind of authority problem with the police now? I mean, clearly in our country as a whole, in, a, in our history, there have been bad police. You know, there's bad citizens, there's bad, bad police. And I think in many situations, and for a long time, the bad actions by police officers did not get addressed the way they should have been. So when we see you know, some of these horrific incidents that we've been seeing around the country, a lot of times when they go back, they will find that there were indicators of that police officer's inability to cope professionally with situations. And so, and yes, our, our country, our society as a whole has had racism evident throughout it. And that's been something I know, I, I grew up very cognizant. My father was a civil rights activist in our community. He was a lawyer. So I grew up very cognizant of racial injustice and issues and how power tended to side with people with money and power over people without it, or people of a different skin color or ethnicity, and was kind of horrified. Well, I think you were moving right into the area that we had talked about, and I'm just gonna let this keep rolling. Oh. Okay, it was to control and persuade. That was that phrase we had talked about mm -hmm. earlier, the media targeting yeah. of police to control yeah. and persuade. And um, the kinds of situations officers find themselves in, and then moving into buying into the hammer. So and what are specific examples of good leadership? Well, uh, first and foremost, strong ethics, um, a commitment to the ideals of justice, and commitment to demonstrating that in all aspects of, of your force, your job, your personnel, and making sure that, that actions are evaluated and responded to appropriately and swiftly. As a society and police agencies as well have gotten um, very uh, much driven by statistics because we are able to use a computer to take numbers and try and put meaning to them in graphs or in 
something like that. And the problem is, if you are exclusively trying to look at numbers as a measurement of your success in society in general, and in policing very particularly, when you're only focused on numbers, but people like it because it's hard. It's they can put it on paper. They it's can say data. it's Sometimes. data. <laughs> this is data. It's based on fact, and we have analysis based on on numbers and fact. But it does not tell the human story, and the human story is more important than the numbers. So, so the danger of worshiping data. Yes. Not to not to ignore it, but not right. to worship it and rely on it exclusively. Right. So, for instance. When I started as a police officer, there was a lot of encouragement to know the community. We were encouraged to get out of our troop car, to introduce ourselves, to talk to businesses, to talk to neighborhoods, to walk around, be in the community, get a feel for what was going on in our, in our beat, in our area. And then when we got this ability to evaluate things by number. People complained about soft evaluations. Well, it's subjective. So this person gets a great evaluation because the supervisor see, sees or knows or likes them and so says they're doing a great job. Whereas I get ignored because I don't have that connection with the supervisor. So what's the response? Hard data, we'll have some hard data for that response. When you focus too much on the hard data, then you lose the fact that someone has a knowledge and a relationship and a connection to his community that takes time to develop. It doesn't just happen. So if you're, look, if you're looking at your, um, your career, is it, that was the era of the numbers. And I know that everybody's that. careers has that. waves, yeah. you know, like, yes. okay, that was the era, that was that five to seven year period where the it was all about the numbers. And then the next one was all about the touchy-feely things. Yes. And then yeah. like seven years later, there was something else. Your law enforcement really should look like your community. You don't want all male white police officers in a very ethnically diverse you don't want all male officers anywhere, I don't think. But again, that kind of thing is argued. You could go back to when my husband first started as a police officer. And certainly when I came on, there were a lot of people who still felt that police officers should be big and tall and strong and intimidating and therefore not short, not female. And there was a lot of pushback against women in the police force, against short people. My sister actually had looked into applying to the state police. And at that time, they had a height requirement, and she was too short. And they later decided that the height requirement was arbitrary. So they keep evolving that sort of thing. I saw a picture today of a, a, a trooper who came from that old school where all the troopers tended to be all very tall men. And then they started letting in all these short people and women. It was all about the same time. And a lot, a lot of those people had conniptions about it. But anyway, and, and this was someone who kind of did as well. He looked down on people who weren't as tall and as manly and as everything as he was. And he was my supervisor at one time. But anyway, there's a picture of him saying, oh, this is the, the guy who got my shield 
when I retired. And he's since been promoted and he rose up the ranks and, you know, ended up retiring as a, one of the top 10, you know, officers in the state police. <laughs> Here's a picture of the two of them. And the guy who got his shield is like this tall, you know, is about, you know, a foot and a half shorter than that. <laughs> I thought, here he gets it now, he's praising this guy. But when he had started with the state police, they wouldn't have hired that That's man. proof of evolution. In our final segment of this two-part series, Liz describes the relationship between calls to defund the police and what happens when police work crosses over into mental health crisis management. One thing when you, you brought up, um, I don't know what defund the police means. And again, this, this you talk about your waves. And so defund the police has a lot to do with not so much saying take away all monies from the police, but say, let's take some of our, the money that we've put into police and put it into a different social program. Uh, we want to have more mental health professionals responding because we've seen where people who are mentally ill end up being killed by police in, in some sort of dangerous situation. And people say, oh, that shouldn't have happened. Well, yes, it shouldn't have happened, but unfortunately it was a dangerous situation. And in my career, again, during that time, we defunded, in great numbers, mental health resources. Because we said, oh, you know, locking people up or enforcing um, hospitalizations for people who are mentally ill is cruel and people get abused that way and it's not right. So we're going to defund our mental health resources. And they closed psychiatric facilities all around the state. You can go and find these huge facilities that are now empty. Some of them they've tried to revive. Some are just rotting away. It's unbelievable. And this, this happened during my career. But then one of the things was, because now we don't have the mental health facilities, we need the police to respond because the people with mental health crises get violent and dangerous. And who's going to go? Well, we don't have money, mental health money. We but we have police money, or we'll put more money into the police because we need the police to go there because they're dangerous and scary people. And so, <laughs> and now we're back saying, well, we want, it, we want to have more money in them. <laughs> I mean, when they did that, we all said, oh, this is horrible. We, we can't just defund mental health. Well, I remember so many years ago when they demobilized all of the institutions, the mental institutions, yeah. and literally just threw them out into the street yes. with no caseworkers, no, yep. no net, yep. no nothing, and then later had to go back and reboot into small residential facilities for those who simply could not function mm -hmm. out in the world. And they got some of them in that net, but the rest just were left on their own yeah. in very dire circumstances. Yes. We were talking about this earlier, and this defund the police has taken on kind of like a... Negative. Negative. Yeah. But you say defund the police, and then everyone gets up in arms. It's a, it's a lefty movement, or is... But see, a lot of that is very deliberately targeted and driven by Rupert Murdoch, and his organization is one of them. Yeah. They, they put said, that slant on it. Yes, they turned it into 
This is attacking you. Police, they are after you. I mean, they, and, and, and it's a deliberate, it's not someone just writing an op-ed because that's what they're thinking about. This is people with power and money saying, we want this message to go out like this, and we want to convince yeah. a, a population. Right. And, and they do it, and they do it effectively. As an idiot citizen, that to me just baffles my mind to think that broadly that there is a coherent, concerted effort to make things be that way, to mm -hmm. be, you know, to be bad, mm -hmm. <laughs> be very bad. Because, <laughs> because when you have people who are afraid for their you job, have control. you have right. control, okay. and you can control the money. And power question. and money is such a huge driver of so many of these things. And so when you, we talk about the police issue, it's also very much a societal issue and a class issue. So that kind of issue. Brings, up, um, brings us to the point of the fraternity of police mm -hmm. officers and how entrenched the culture is how you have to go along with the rest of us or we won't be there for you. And I'm imagining that it's not just the movies or the drama, but that it's real situation that people who want to do the right thing sometimes when it's going the other way have to face. And it's not just in law enforcement. I think it happens in every group. It does. Right? Yeah, it does. And so again, it's it, you know, we have some spectacular fails that way. We're just hearing things nowadays where, oh, yeah, you sent the social worker out with a police mm -hmm. and a patrol car. Or, like, what are all the different options that mm -hmm. we can have? Right. So maybe there could be a, um, I don't know, a section of the police department where it's mostly mental health. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, and again, that, that does get problematic in the smaller communities where your number of police is small. And that is what, you know, when I was trained, what we were trying to do is make sure we had some understanding of mental health issues and the law and to respond appropriately. And I think, I think we had, we were given good training, but of course any training takes leadership to continue what you learned in the training, and to support it, and to, um, and, and, but the public also has to realize that you have a, a, a mentally ill person coming at somebody with a knife, they can kill somebody. And you can't miraculously stop them without somebody getting hurt. When I first heard the discussion about that, I thought, well, well, that's so unfair, and yeah, it is. And, you know, understanding, having a sister with a son who has uh, mental health issues, I could see very easily how his behavior could be misinterpreted or that he could easily, for example, go for an officer's gun thinking this was the best thing since sliced bread. Right. Like, oh, a gun, I've seen these on TV. Um, one of the problems with someone who's mentally ill and dangerous, and, and 
They might not be dangerous 24-7. They're dangerous when they're in a crisis. And the thing is, when they're dangerous, they're dangerous. How do you control them? And what we used to have when you had the ability for people to be detained in a facility was maybe, and again, you know, we didn't do that. But our medical system right now is not set up very well to give people the feedback and the adjustment that's needed, especially with mental health issues, because a person who's mentally ill is frequently incapable of making a good decision. So right now, we don't have inpatient facilities, or we have very few. So somebody has a crisis where they're taking a knife and they want to kill somebody or stab somebody or shoot somebody. And, and there are a lot of mentally ill people who want to do all those things or who just do them in a freak lash out, but they can kill and maim and, and they do. So somebody's got to stop them. Who's that going to be? And how are you going to stop them? And of course you try to stop them without violence, but then what? Okay, now I've stopped them in the incident. Now what do I do with them? Who's going to help them? I'm not a doctor. I can't give them medicine or treatment. If I take them to our crisis center and there's no beds, are they likely to say, we think you're okay to go home? You're not a danger anymore. The crisis has passed and they don't get the help. So you, you go again and again and again. And that's very frustrating for police. And it's sad, it's heartbreaking. So we have a lot of training, we've put a lot of resources into, okay, somebody has got a gun and they're threatening to kill their family members or themselves, but if you can contain them and then hopefully calm them down so that you can resolve it peaceably, it takes a lot of time and a lot of resources because the person is armed with a deadly weapon and, and ready to use it. So we, we do do a lot of training and, and have been very effective in preventing mentally ill people from being killed by the police in a, a deadly situation. Not always, sometimes people get hurt and killed in those situations, but we have developed certain responses. So anyway, we had a situation, man, you know, with the gun, he's threatening his family. He ends up barricading himself with the gun. He's gonna maybe kill himself or try and get the police to kill him, or, you know, it's, it's crazy. I mean, the person is mentally ill, so it goes all over the place. And the police respond. The mother and the, the son have called for help and at some point are able to get control of the, the person who is threatening the violence. And it becomes a physical scuffle, at which point the, the son decides he's got to defend the father now because he doesn't like the police putting the handcuffs on his father or taking him to the, or whatever it was. And the son is 12 years old, but is six feet tall. And, but it gets resolved without anybody getting hurt, but it's a bad situation and now there's guns in the house. Well, we go take the guy to what's appropriate, jail or a mental health facility, not jail. Goes to the mental health facility, calms down, convinces the doctor he's fine to leave. Now what? He goes home, his guns are still there, he hasn't been charged with the crime so he can't take the guns. The doctor didn't order the guns getting taken away, so he can't take the gun. Again, we did adjust some laws, so we can seize the guns more easily, but 
not necessarily all the guns the guy has access to. Here's a situation where, like, the dad had the guns, and then they would just hand them over. <laughs> it goes on and on and on. And I remember calling the, the hospital and saying I wanted to speak to the psychiatrist who was getting ready to release him, saying, clearly, this is a really bad and dangerous situation, and we need something so we can seize the guns. Can't you... Give us time to go get a court order before you let this guy go. And, and I get the response, well, we can't talk to you about him. And I said, okay, I'm not asking you to tell me anything. I'm going to tell you something that, you know, we have a real problem and we need your help. And I got nowhere with that. But it did blow up again later into a big whole another scene where multiple lives were in danger. So that's cyclical. It, yeah. Um, and, and that was in large part because we don't have the money in our mental health institutions and in our mental health staff. It was interesting. I took a tour of the county, the county jail mm-hmm. and um, had preconceptions that were instantly dis- dismissed as, you know, very well-run, you know, mm-hmm. respectful yeah. facility. And one of the things I saw was that, oh, well, the people there have a very regular structure. Mm-hmm. They have very specific times that each thing is happening. Mealtime is very specific and reliable. Mm-hmm. And there's meals and there's lights out and there's all the things that we had been searching for in residential placement for my sister's autistic son was here now available at your local jail. sheriff's jailhouse. Yeah. And, and when I said that to the sheriff, I said, well, they have structure. They have safety. The place was clean, I thought, mm-hmm. from where a lot of people come from. This it's is heaven. Now, yes. This is like, wow. Yeah. Nobody's screaming. Nobody's yelling. No, you know, like the, I have a little room. It's it's painted nice color. I'm, I'm getting a meal. It's, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm all, I'm all right. <laughs> you know, and not that I'm saying, you know, everybody <laughs> wants to go to jail, but I'm saying... For some people, it is respite. It, it is, yeah, it totally is structure and safety. We had someone, both my husband and I dealt with um, for many years, who had a, a, an alcohol and a mental health problem, and uh, which amazingly, after many, many years of struggle, he seemed to really get under control and in order. And I dealt with him in very um, pleasant professional circumstances subsequently and, and was delighted and astounded to see him at, you know, the age of 60 or something thriving, whereas he had spent probably 15 or 20 of the years of my career and 10 or more of my husband's before that, you know, so in in chaos. But he was somebody who struggled with all of those things and got into trouble and would get arrested and complaints and all kinds of problems. And um, we worked hard to, to... help him function and um which he appreciates he's he's someone who used to call our house to chat sometimes because he remembered both my husband and me another reason you may not want your phone listening (laughs) you know but as people who were helpful but he came in one he was at the he was intoxicated and whatever and and wanted my husband to arrest him so he could stay in the jail and my husband, well, I, I can't, you know, do that. Well, what do I have to, you know, what do I have to do? And he's like, well, I mean, you have to break the law for me to arrest you. So he picked up a chair and threw it through the front window of the sheriff's department. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now we can arrest you. <laughs> you know, so what 
you say that sometimes people are happy to be in there. This was a poor soul who actually Literally was happy. got yeah. a rest wow. there. Yeah. So maybe on that note, we close up <laughs> for the moment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And thanks so much, Liz Wonka, retired state trooper, a longtime, longtime member of the Shenango community. And, and you know, I have to say, while I have been critical of law enforcement, specifically at times, of myself at times, I also see a lot of fine examples of law enforcement officers across the board in all agencies. And, you know, so I... I think law enforcement has the ability to do well and to serve the community well. And, and we'd like to call that out. Yes, I think, you know, by far the number of positive outcomes are so much larger than the negative ones. That concludes another episode of Shenango Voice. We hope you enjoyed our program. Please subscribe using your favorite podcast application so that you can be notified when our next episode is published. This episode of Shenango Voice is sponsored by the Bohemian Moon Restaurant. Bohemian Moon is kicking off their new Doshi Rock meal program in the first quarter of 2021. Doshi Rock is a monthly subscription meal plan featuring convenient weekly prepared meals for pickup or delivery. Dine-in service is available Wednesday through Saturday from 4.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. Dine-in times are subject to change, so please visit their website at twobakeriesandarestaurant.com or call 334-9480 for the current dine-in schedule and for more information about the safe and convenient Doshi Rock meal program. Thank you for listening. <laughs>